0: Today's scripture reading is 1st Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. Again, what we'll be reading today is all of 1st Corinthians chapter 8. This is verses 1 through 13. If you're using a blue pew Bible in front of you, the passage can be found on page 956. Please stand with me in honor of God's good and perfect word. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the truth that resides in in the scriptures and that we pray for your spirit to help us to understand this truth and to respond appropriately with faith and obedience to your truth for your glory and for our good all in jesus name we pray amen well church the study of first corinthians that we've been in since the start of the year We've been noticing a consistent theme running throughout these various chapters. That's the theme of division. Various issues were dividing this first century church. Factions were forming, sides were being drawn, discord and disunity were rampant in the church. This is why we're calling this study a letter or this book, a letter. To a troubled church. Now, we've already noted that one of the underlying causes behind this division was their arrogance, their spiritual pride. Paul had already pointed out how some were claiming to make, uh, that, that some are claiming this, this claim of having achieved a greater spirituality than that of their peers. They were claiming to, to be closer to God more spiritual than others, and that was driving a wedge between fellow church members. In chapter 7, he brought up a letter that they had previously written to him where they had raised various issues. And it's likely that this letter came from a particular faction in the church that was trying to justify their various positions to Paul. So chapter 7, as we had just finished looking at, related to that uh, group's particular position on the issues of sex and marriage. Well, in today's text, here in chapter 8, Paul responds to another issue that they raised in that letter. And this time, this faction was trying to justify their position on the contentious issue of eating meat that had been previously offered to idols. And I know that sounds like a really strange thing for people in the church to be arguing about, but you have to understand that in those days there was a serious disagreement over whether a Christian can, in good conscience, eat food offered to an idol, or would doing so be inherently wrong and sinful. So some saw it as merely a matter of Christian freedom, so they didn't see it as a problem at all. But others in the church viewed the eating of meat sacrificed to idols as a participation in the idolatrous worship that it all originated from. So for some in the church, their consciences were clean. Their consciences were, allowed them to eat the meat, even eating that meat in the context of a meal in an idol's temple. But for others in the same church, their consciences prevented them from doing any of that. Eating meat that had been previously offered, let alone eating that in the temple of that idol. So you can imagine how both sides would have viewed each other as less spiritual. You you, you could imagine how they would have have judged one another. So you, you either have those thinking that the other side, man, those guys are too legalistic. Because their consciences are are oversensitive on this particular issue. Or on the other side, they're thinking, man, those people on the other side of the aisle, they're just too permissive. Their consciences are too loose. They're too insensitive on this issue. But either way, regardless of which side they're on, the main problem is that there are sides being drawn at all within the one body of Christ. Division, again, friends, is the main problem here. And here, in this case, it just so happens to relate to the Christian conscience. Now, before we get into the details of of their disagreement, let's first make sure that, that we're on the same page when it comes to our understanding of the conscience. What is that? What is your conscience? Well, conscience is often described as that inner voice. The inner voice inside every single one of us that bears witness to what is either right or wrong. And everyone has one. Everyone has a conscience. Christians, non-Christians, we all have one. It's just part of the imago Day, the image of God that we all share. Now, sadly, there are some in society whose consciences are so damaged, so seared, that they would be rightly called sociopaths. Their consciences no longer work, not telling them anymore what is right or wrong. But everyone else, everyone else you meet has a working conscience that will either prick or prod, accuse or excuse, comfort or convict. And it's that inner voice we're talking about here, that inner voice telling you what is right or wrong. And that really speaks to the limited function of the conscience. It only deals with the category of right or wrong. Its job is not to help you make decisions about what school you should apply for or whether you should marry that person or where the two of you should go live or whether or not you should change your career path. Answering those kinds of questions is the job of spirit-led, scripture-informed wisdom. You turn to biblical wisdom for answering those things. The conscience really has only two speeds, right or wrong, sinful or not sinful, black or white. It doesn't handle shades of gray very well. It'll either accuse you or excuse you. So if you consult your conscience to help you to make a decision, then you better make sure that that decision deals only with the issues of right or wrong. If you're looking for advice on how to choose between good better, or best, then don't look to your conscience. It's not going to help you there. The conscience deals with good or bad, right or wrong. Now, I know that, that sounds pretty straightforward. It sounds pretty clear. But, of course, we know that matters of conscience are far, far from straightforward and clear. Matters of conscience are complicated because even though we only have two speeds, We all have different interpretations of the speed limit, meaning that we all have different interpretations of what is right or wrong. And so in the first century Corinthian church, there were clashing consciences over the rightness or the wrongness of eating food sacrificed to idols. Now for us, In the 21st century American church, well, there are clashing consciences between fellow Christians over the rightness and wrongness of COVID vaccines, mask mandates, voting Republican or Democrat, using someone's preferred pronouns, behaviors like drinking alcohol, smoking, recreational drug use. Now, Friends, if any of those issues I just named caught your attention and you're thinking, how is that controversial? It's obvious what's right in that case. Of course, every Christian should dot, dot, dot. That just goes to show how important it is to talk about this issue of the conscience. Because it's very likely that your conscience won't perfectly match with other Christians, even Christians Right here, sitting next to you. So if we want to preserve the unity of our church, if we want to resist the kind of divisions that can come when consciences are clashing within a community, then we must learn how to tend to our own consciences while at the same time being sensitive to each other's. So to do that, I want us to consider three lessons that can be learned about the Christian conscience. That's what we're going to do today as we study chapter 8. So if you want to look in your bulletin, look at the outline there, and there's, these are the three lessons we're going to consider. First, a strong, informed conscience without love can be destructive. Second, a weak, misinformed conscience without instruction can be oversensitive and third a strong informed conscience guided by selfless love can be truly free all right first let's consider how a strong informed conscience without love can be destructive that is it can tear down a church when our whole goal is to build it up now i think paul is clear here in this text and in other places where he talks about the conscience, whether later in chapter 10 or in Romans 14, I think it's clear that his preference is for every Christian to develop a strong and informed conscience. Back in chapter 1, he was commending the Corinthians for being a theologically knowledgeable and spiritually gifted church. He commends them for that. He, he, he's glad that they are Strong and informed. And yet, and yet, as we'll see later on in chapter 13, Paul is also disappointed in how much they lack in love. A strong and informed conscience is better than a weak and misinformed one. But if you have not love, you are but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you have not love, you are nothing and you gain nothing. You're just going to destroy your community. So Paul begins, if you look with me in chapter 8, verse 1, addressing yet another matter, dividing the church. Look at verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. This, as we said, was an issue that was raised in the previous letter that, that a group of Corinthians had sent to him. Those, those with strong consciences were the ones likely sending this letter, trying to justify their eating of this kind of food. Now, some historical background is, is going to help you to, to, to understand this. The Greek word here that's translated by the phrase, food offered to idols, that's just referring to sacrificial meat. When a a worshiper offered a sacrificial animal within a pagan temple, part of the animal, part of the meat would have been burned right there on the altar, and that would have been considered the the portion given to that god or that goddess, that, that idol. But then, Some of that meat, at the same time, would have been eaten right there on temple grounds. Either in an explicitly religious feast as an extension of that religious uh, worship, or in another context, still on temple grounds, it would have been eaten in a non-idolatrous social meal with no religious sacrifice involved and after that if there still was more leftover meat then the rest of it would have been sold into the sold at the meat market for people to take home for personal consumption so that's that was what's going on in their day so when dealing with this issue of eating meat offered to idols we have to distinguish between three distinct contexts first First, there's the context of a Christian purchasing this kind of meat from the meat market to eat at home, knowing, though, that it had been previously offered to an idol in this or that temple. Does the origin of the meat and its close association with idol worship, does it necessarily taint the meat, making it therefore unholy for Christians to consume? There were believers in Corinth who thought, nah, it's, it's totally fine. It's just meat. It's okay. While others considered eating that kind of meat to be idolatrous and flat out wrong. And Paul addresses that particular context here in our text and later on in chapter 10, verses 23 to 33, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. Oh, actually. We'll look at it in the fall when we, when we take a break from Corinthians. We'll come back to that. Th- then there's, of course, the more contentious scenario where the meat is actually consumed in the temple itself. But even in this scenario, there are distinctions to be made. So the second context is where a Christian eats this meat. While participating in one of those explicitly religious feasts that are really just an extension of idol worship. And Paul is going to directly address that issue in chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. And there, friends, I'll just let you know, he is black and white about that context of eating it as part of the religious Worship of that idol. He says it would be completely wrong to participate in that feast, eating that food, because that is direct participation in idolatry. He compares it even to the Christians eating of the Lord's Supper as part of our religious worship to our Lord Jesus. He's comparing it the same way. This has religious significance eating it in that context has religious significance that is not a matter of conscience that we can just, you know, agree to disagree about. No, that is a matter of obedience. You should flee from that kind of idolatry. That's what he says in chapter 10. But there is a third context. And that's where a Christian eats this meat in an idol's temple, but in one of those non-idolatrous social dinners, much like eating in a public restaurant today. See, back back then, in those days, it was common for trade guilds to conduct their feasts within an idol's temple. So, you know, if you were a mason in those days, you'd be probably invited to come and attend a feast put on by the local masonry guild. Well, the guild and all the people invited, it's probably too many people to fit inside one, you know, ancient Near Eastern home. So we're going to hold this dinner. Well, it's not like they had a booming restaurant scene back then in Corinth. So you would hold that meal in a temple because back then, temples served also as public dining halls. It's, it's, like, it's like if a non-Christian showed up at church today at 1230, you know, just going to join us for some lunch, just to eat, eat some lunch with some friends. Just because the man is eating A meal in a church building doesn't mean that he's participating in the worship of our Lord that we're doing right now. So, in the same way, some in the Corinthian church saw that that is the same situation as as eating in one of those social dinners. To them, it was a non-issue. They could eat a meal in that context with a completely clean conscience because they knew they weren't there to worship an idol. They were there to to, to fellowship with some friends, to, to to be with some some peers. But others in the church felt strongly. That any kind of meal conducted in an idol's temple would be religious by nature and that would associate you with idolatry. So their consciences could not allow them to eat in an idol's temple because they saw it as sinful. Now if it helps to have a contemporary example for you to kind of you know, really understand the dynamics here. Just think about this. Think about eating in Chinatown. I'm sure many of you have had the experience of walking into a Chinese restaurant where, right there, at the entrance, the owners have placed a plate of oranges and incense before a statue of Buddha. And they do that because they want Buddha to bless them and bless their restaurant with prosperity. So if prayers to a false god, prayers to an idol are being made in that restaurant, would it be wrong for Christians to dine there? Now, I assume most of you could eat in that restaurant with a clean conscience. But what if? What if you were walking into that restaurant with another Christian who immediately turns around and leaves the restaurant and you ask, why? What's going on? And they say, because of that Buddha right there. Did you see that? There's an idol there. Idol worship is happening in there. We're Christians. We can't eat in there. Now. Let's just say you're really looking forward to trying out this new popular restaurant. Or, to add to that, just imagine if the two of you were there for a birthday party, a birthday dinner for a mutual friend, and everyone's already inside, everyone's seated, everyone's ready to go, and you would be really disappointed to miss out on that party. But your friend refuses to go in. In that hypothetical, what would you do? What would you do? That question really gets to the heart of this text. Because Paul is mainly concerned to instruct those in the church who have the stronger informed conscience. They apparently knew that others with weaker consciences were offended by their actions. With with some of these weaker brothers reluctantly joining in in these meals in an idol's temple against their own consciences. Meaning that they were led to do what their consciences, consciences were telling them is wrong. But these members with stronger informed consciences didn't really seem to care what they were doing to their other brothers. They did what they wanted to do because... They knew the truth. They knew that idols are not real. They're just statues, statues of wood or stone. They knew that there's only one true God and he eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They had good theology. They knew that every square inch on this earth ultimately belongs to the Lord. So even if they are eating in an idol's temple, they knew that they can still enjoy that food in that room, in the Lord's presence, and for his glory. They knew that. They had good theology. But even though but even though it was potentially harming the faith of their brothers and sisters with weaker consciences, even though they just pressed on. They just did what they wanted to do, justifying their behavior by an appeal to their superior knowledge on this particular matter. So look at verse one. And notice how the ESV translators put that phrase in quotations. Quote, all of us possess knowledge. That's in quotations there. And I think they've accurately identified that that phrase is a quote coming from that previous letter sent to Paul. It's like these Corinthians, these stronger informed Corinthians, were saying, saying, look, Paul, I'm sorry that these people are offended, but come on, you and I know that they just don't know better. We know it's not a sin to do this. All of us possess this knowledge. You know, maybe from time to time, we actually need to provoke our friends a little, We need to prod them a little, those with weaker consciences, in order to to, to lead them, to share the same knowledge of the truth as we have. Well, listen to Paul's response to that, to that kind of justification. We know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now notice, friends, how Paul doesn't disagree with their knowledge. Their theology doesn't need correcting. He goes on, actually, to affirm in verses 4 to 6. that He affirms their their clear grasp of theological facts. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And, and again, I think these quotations are likely coming from these stronger brothers. And in verses 5 to 6, Paul suggests that he does agree with them. They're right. It's not their theology that he's trying to correct. It's their attitude. He disagrees with with their prideful contempt for their weaker brothers and sisters. He's saying, look, your knowledge is correct, which is why, yes, your conscience is strong, but a strong, informed conscience without love fails to build up others in their faith. Instead, it just puffs up your ego. That's all it does. So Paul goes on to warn that your correct knowledge might become, look at verse 9, a stumbling block to the weak. You might lead a weaker brother to follow in your steps and act against conscience, committing what his conscience is telling him is a sin. Your correct knowledge will end up damaging, perhaps even destroying this guy's faith. You will have sinned against your weaker brother and wounded his conscience. Ultimately, you will have sinned against Christ, he who died for both you and your weaker brother. Now, my friends, this is a word of correction that I think many of us need to hear. In that scenario I gave you, standing outside that Chinese restaurant, I think many of us might try to correct our brother right there on the spot and tell him, come on, come on, it's no big deal. Stop being so sensitive. Don't be so legalistic. Let's go, come on, let's go inside. Everyone's waiting for us, come on. Many of us would probably grow frustrated with that brother. And it's no surprise if we begin to grow relationally distant with that person because we feel like he's just... He's too prudish, too legalistic. There's no fun to be around. And that's how relational cracks begin to form. That's how divides begin to happen within a community. That's how those of us with strong, informed consciences can grow puffed up in pride and we can contribute to the collapse of a community. Now, friends, even though Paul's main focus is to correct the attitude of those with strong, informed consciences. Notice with me, though, he also does have something to say to the other side, to, to the weaker brothers. Here's our second lesson that we need to learn. A weak, misinformed conscience without instruction can be oversensitive. That's what some people need to hear. Paul goes on in verse 7 to address those who don't recognize that That eating food offered to idols is permissible. Even eating it in an idol's temple in in a social dinner context. He describes those who don't have this knowledge as those who have weak consciences. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, I know at first glance, it seems like Paul is using labels of weak and strong in order to make value judgments. As if he's declaring that these Christians over here who are stronger in their consciences, they're the more spiritual ones. They're the better Christians. But that would not fit the context of this letter at all. Because remember, the the, the primary problem in the church is the vision stemming from this arrogant attitude of seeing yourself as more spiritual than your fellow Christians. So Paul is clearly not adding to that. He's not siding with these stronger Christians in this case, calling them more spiritual. No, he's actually trying to correct them. He's trying to correct the situation. So when Paul says that someone has a weak conscience, don't automatically take offense to that he's not insulting by saying that you have a weak conscience by weak he just means a conscience that is easily wounded easily pricked it's oversensitive that person that has that kind of a conscience sees most issues in black and white as matters of sin and disobedience Now, of course, Paul's not suggesting that that we should never be black and white about things or that there, there aren't clear matters out there of right and wrong. But he is asking the question, where are you drawing your convictions? What's informing your conscience to determine for you what is right or wrong? And Paul is suggesting that those who have weaker consciences should consider the possibility that they are being stricter than God himself what if you have more rules burdening your conscience than god has in scripture when you have more convictions than god himself then yes your conscience will probably be probably be easily wounded and easily pricked that's what paul means by having a weak conscience So here's another example for you. Imagine a Christian whose conscience tells them it's wrong to drink coffee. Because coffee is a stimulant with addictive qualities. And you might be thinking, no one thinks that. Well, actually, that's not a very far-fetched example. Because there are actually many religious groups out there that prohibit the drinking of coffee. I mean, just think about the Mormons. Think about Muslims. That's the very reason why they tell their adherents to not drink coffee. Well, didn't Paul also say in chapter 6, verse 12, that all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything or mastered by anything. So, so this Christian reads Corinthians six twelve and draws the conclusion, conclusion that it would be wrong to partake of anything that is addictive, that could have dominance or mastery over your impulses. And so that's why they say coffee is wrong for Christians to drink. Now I think, and I'm going to assume, that most of us would consider that an example of a weak conscience. That we don't think drinking coffee is a sin. We would say that this brother has a misinformed conscience about what God's word permits or restricts, and we would try to help him to calibrate his conscience so that it more closely aligns with God's word. And he can, you know, try to try to help him to understand First Corinthians 6.12 in its context, and you'll realize that it doesn't, it doesn't mean by application you can't drink coffee. Now, for that to happen though, to help this brother to be able to, to have a theologically informed conscience he's going to have to shed some rules. rules that he has probably been living by for quite some time. Rules that he has strictly held himself to, probably held a lot of other people to. And so letting go of those rules can be a hard thing to do. But that's what you have to do if you want to strengthen your conscience. If you have more rules than God, you have a weak conscience and to grow in strength means to align your conscience more closely to what God actually prohibits and God actually permits in Scripture. So in our example, we can try to help that brother develop a more theologically informed position. And hopefully uh, he will come to realize that he is permitted to drink coffee if he wants to. But he doesn't have to drink coffee. Maybe he doesn't like the taste of it. But what's important is that he doesn't judge or condemn anyone who does enjoy a cup of Joe. You know, enjoys drinking coffee, getting a latte. You know, don't judge that person. What's important is that our consciences don't clash over such issues so that our unity as a church is preserved. Now, I'm sure that was what Paul's hope was for the Corinthian church. I'm sure he wanted those with weaker consciences when it came to this issue of food offered to idols to develop a more theologically informed position. He would want their consciences to be less burdened by so many rules and more calibrated to scripture. They don't have to eat in an idol's temple. They don't have to buy meat that was used for idol worship. They don't even have to like eating meat. What's more important is that they don't judge or condemn any Christian who does. What's more important is that they maintain the unity of the Spirit by tending to their own consciences. So that's what those with the weaker conscience can be able to, to do in response to Paul's instruction here. But of course, as we said, as we said, this particular passage, chapter 8, here, Paul is more focused, not on the weaker brother, he's actually more focused on those with strong informed consciences. Because between these two factions, divided over the issue of eating food, sacrifice to idols, Paul is expecting those with the strong informed conscience to take the initiative, to make the first move towards those weaker brothers and sisters. Yes, as we said, Paul would prefer all believers to develop a strong and informed conscience but one that is guided by love and that leads to our third lesson to be learned here a strong and informed conscience guided by selfless love can be truly free look at verse eight with me verse eight here paul makes it clear that that all On the issue itself, he does agree with those with strong informed consciences. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. So in other words, if your conscience is free and allows you to eat food offered to an idol, then eat to the glory of God. You are free in Christ. You have that right to eat meat. But look at verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So Paul's message to those with strong informed consciences is that yes, you are free. You have Christian freedom, but that's not a freedom to do whatever I want. Nobody better judge me. That's not that's not what Christian freedom's about. That that's the attitude he's actually trying to correct in this letter to the Corinthians. In this letter, he's explaining how that understanding of Christian freedom is so so short-sighted and selfish, really. It fails to appreciate the full extent of our freedom in Christ. Listen to verse 9 again. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So if the exercise of your Christian freedom causes a brother or sister in Christ to stumble in their walk, and you don't care about that, then I'm sorry, but you're not as free as you think yourself to be. Now, What do I mean by that? Well, when we think about Christian freedom, we tend to think of that in terms of being free from legalism. Being free from a rules-based religion, being free to live according to your conscience as long as you're not violating Scripture, as long as you're not committing a sin. You're free to do what you want to do. But that idea of Christian freedom falls so short of what it truly means to be free in Christ. Friends, freedom in Christ doesn't mean that you are free to do whatever you want as long as it's not a sin. Christ didn't die to free you to now live a self-centered life where you're only concerned about doing whatever you want to do as long as it's not sin, even though it might actually be a stumbling block to other people. That was our condition before Jesus died for us. Before he died for our sins, we were enslaved to it. We were enslaved to selfish, self-centered desires. Without Christ, we are not free to seek the good of other people. We are not free to die to ourselves, to put the interest of others before us. We were sinners with selfish hearts. But then Jesus died for us. And when we turn to Jesus and we trust in him, the enslaving power of sin is broken. And now, friends, you are truly free. True Christian freedom means that you are finally free to act in whatever way is necessary to better love others. Even if that means laying aside certain freedoms. That was Paul's sentiment in verse 13. Look there. Verse 13. Therefore... If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's basically saying, sure, I love meat. I love eating meat in those social dinners in an idol's temple because of all the non-Christians I get to reach out to. I love doing that. But in the end, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ far more and so if eating this meat will make them stumble past the veggies pass the past the vegetables I, I i will never eat meat again i care about other christians way more than i care about meat that's what Paul's saying that's how he understood christian freedom Being free in Christ is fundamentally about freeing you from the grips of sin and selfishness, where you are now free to do whatever it takes to better love others, even if that means limiting your freedom, even if that means restricting or laying aside your rights. That, my friends, is the fullest extent of Christian freedom. And if you think about it, it's exactly what Christ Jesus did for us. He limited his divine freedom. He laid aside his divine rights. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? So that he could better love us. So that he could redeem us and unify us as one church, one family, one body, one bride. That's why he did it. So church, let's be thankful that we are free in Christ. But more than that, let's be loving and selfless, knowing that we are free enough now. To even lay down our freedoms and rights. We don't have to cling to those things anymore. We are free in Christ. Let me conclude by returning to that hypothetical scenario. Standing outside that Chinese restaurant. With that Christian friend who refuses to go in. Yes. You would be free in Christ to walk on in and enjoy that meal with those other friends without giving a moment's notice to that statue at the entrance. You would not be committing idolatry, but neither would you be loving your friend. As a Christian, you are so free in Christ that you are free enough to die to your own self-interest. You are free enough to die to your disappointment in missing out on that dinner with those friends. Christian love calls you to lay aside your Christian freedom and to suggest another restaurant that the two of you can enjoy together in good conscience. Christ died and rose again for you to become that kind of selfless, loving friend. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for just how relevant scripture is and how it speaks to us. It speaks to our consciences. And so, Lord, if our consciences are, are either oversensitive or insensitive, may you calibrate our consciences to align it more closely to your word, to your truth, that we might be more selfless and more loving and that you might preserve our unity as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.